Since time immemorial, indigenous people have lived, traveled, and traded in the Puget Sound region. The Donation Land Act of 1850 to encourage westward expansion allowed American settlers to claim these traditional native lands. The explosion of immigration into the region that followed forced the U.S. government into a fraught treaty-making process with local tribes. The original terms of the Medicine Creek Treaty were inadequate and ultimately unaccepted by tribal leaders resulting in war. The Indigenous Voices podcast is an extension of the award-winning Puget Sound Treaty War Panel series and Fort Nisqually Living History Museum. The podcast advances tribal voices in the telling of Puget Sound history and shares tribal knowledge and expertise with wider audiences. Monuments and memorials to the Treaty War can be found throughout Western Washington. Many of these monuments were placed over a century ago and reflect a one-sided and racist view of the conflict. In episodes 11 and 12, we discuss these monuments, how tribal participants experience them, and we ask what a monument that provided an opportunity for reconciliation and learning would look like. This is part two. I'm Brandon Rainon. I'm the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer and Acting Director for the Historic Preservation Department for the Puyallup Tribe. I'm also a Puyallup Tribal member. Hello, my name is Warren King George. I'm an enrolled member of the Muckleshoot Indian Tribe on my father's side. And on my mother's side, I descend from the Upper Skagit Tribe. Nancy Bullchild, Nisqually Indian Tribe. Director of Archives and Tribal Historic Preservation Office, tribal member and uh, tribal elder. Hi, my name is Danny Marshall and I am the current chair of the Stillicum Indian Tribe. I've been working on issues supporting the cultural knowledge of our people since about 1980 and have uh, a passion for making sure that the expertise of the tribal people is shared in a good way. We're going to memorialize things and we've got to memorialize the entire story, um, the, the entire perspective. You know, and how that looks, I don't know. We work with different governments and they start doing, you know, signages and parks and that sort of thing. Where they're incorporating the the whole story is that the is that the way we start going you know where we demolish the old monuments and build new ones and and uh, you know allow a, a complete story not only to be uh, modernized but then to also be uh, brought up to date and full of information. If they're going to be kept, they got to be updated. And so if we're going to have if there's even a, a room for them to even exist then they need to be updated and then portray uh, the whole story. If we're gonna have them, then they gotta be truthful. We have these non-natives who just, who just want the good. They just want uh, something, you know, something positive. Well, like, you know, again, it, nothing positive happened here, <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> and so it can't all be roses and gumdrops. <laughs> I mean, it has to be be told. There was atrocities that occurred. I get a, a lot of requests for things that, you know, for things that I really, I'm not comfortable putting out there, but I know they want to know and I have to tell them, well, go look at this or go look at that. And I know what they're going to find and they might not like it, but at least they're getting the truth. I think that's the big thing to tribes because we're always, always looking at our next generation and what are we going to leave them? No, we can't just tell them, just avoid that monument or, you know, don't go read that. You know, I mean, somewhere we have to be able to help them to say, here's who we are. You know, this is what happened. This is where it happened. But this is our side of the story, you know, and I think they're doing that with taking these derogatory names off of these places, you know, these lakes. I know Mount Rainier is doing it. That's kind of the same fighting for our next generation that they don't have to go through what we have to go through. I think it's our responsibility as tribes have to address that. With Leshai, they always consider him a warrior chief. And I said, he wasn't. There was more to this man. And what he sacrificed was his life for his people. But they don't say that. They don't talk about what he said out in public, it's always what Stephen said or the other governors, but they never talk about what he said. There's a lot of that out there that these tribal leaders, our ancestors said, but that's not printed, whether it's in books or in monu on monuments. And it needs to be out there. We're also trying to get out like interpretive signs to get one there at the marker because there is no history on it. People just know that marker's there. Also, because we're working with that park, to get more interpretive information out at that park also, so that they get a, a better history of what's going on than just what they've seen, you know, currently. So, you know, Nisqually's working on it. We're trying to get more information out to the public on that site with that marker. There's the good and the bad with it. The good is it's still there. It makes people think about it because otherwise, once something is gone or built over or built around, you lose what was at that site. And for tribes, we need to know these places because there were sites there. There were camps. There were different things at these sites that we have to remember. And as people have gone through some of these places, they've looked them up, they've done a survey, but they didn't document it very well. So like at Fort Silicon, for instance, there was the building that Leshai was held at, but it no longer exists. They're going to show me the site so that I can put something up there because they don't realize how long he was in that building because he had to go through two trials. So that's some of the stuff that's not told. And I know when it was on TV, the store owner was saying that's negative. I want something positive. I'm like, uh, excuse me, you know, our... Our tribal leader was hung there for no reason, so yeah. There's several opportunities, I think, to create what my traditional teachers call teaching stations. Some of them are modern day and some of them are historical and traditional. So if we were to acknowledge these sites, they would definitely be historical and traditional places that could educate not just our native youth and our future youth, but uh, also our European neighbors. In our oral histories, we use these teaching stories, what some people call mythological stories that bring to life the landscape 
and incorporate the wildlife and make them characters in these stories that teach us uh, about simple lessons of life, about generosity and, and respect and honor and uh, gratitude. These teaching stations with, with monuments on them, these new monuments, potentially, I think they could be uh, wonderful teaching stations about history, about the importance of our rich culture uh, that dates back thousands of years, 16,000 years, 14,000 years. These monuments could reiterate that. They could reannounce that. Uh, not only the lives and the some of the families that sacrificed literally everything, including their own lives, to make sure that the future and opportunities uh, remained in place so that we can survive in this land that we've always called home for thousands and thousands of years. And perhaps these monuments could help people understand that. It's, it's more than just real estate. It's more than just a, a nice view of the valley or a nice view of, of Puget Sound or the nice view of, of the riverbank. It's more than that. It's one of those topics or subject matters that seldom gets uh, attention. It's not a big secret. It's one of those uh, subjects that's really difficult to talk about because of all the injustices that are attached to it, linked to it, these efforts to suppress and oppress a people and to extinguish a people even. You know, people don't want to admit to that. People don't want to talk about that. And, and especially if they have blood ties to those militiamen, to those soldiers, to those politicians. You know, I certainly feel uncomfortable acknowledging my ties to, to any of those people. It really has to be tribal driven because a lot of times you get people, you know, they have their own interpretation of how things should be. You know, I keep getting people like they're, they're writing books and they'll ask, well, how did they dress and what did they do? You know, they want to go more towards what's convenient from what they've read in history with the war bonnets, with the, these different dress. And you have to tell them, you know, that's not coastal because they're looking for pictures like, can you give us um, a picture of somebody and they're in their traditional regalia back in, you know, maybe even the 90s, 80s. A lot of them did powwow. You know, it was a powwow time where they dressed in the power regalia, which really wasn't coastal. The canoe journeys came in and changed all that with the appropriate dress, the language and everything. So it changed a lot of that. And I'll give you a, for instance, guys writing about bolt decision. And he's asked when they went to trial, how were they dressed? And I go, well, they were in beaded buckskin and they had headbands, you know, braids, but it wasn't coastal, you know, even though they were fighting, you know, at Nisqually River or Puyallup, you know, they were dressed in what you would call powwow or plain style at that time. You know, there really wasn't coastal dress at the time. That's what people were doing was going to powwows. Like I said, my husband is Blackfeet, so he powwowed. You know, we powwowed with my father-in-law. We would go to all these different powwows. So I'd be sitting there because I didn't dress up. My husband would dance. So I'd be sitting out in the bleachers. You know, and I'd hear all these kids behind me, beside me, all these people, they'd all be sitting all excited and then they'd be 
when are the Indians coming out? You know, when are we going to see the Indians? Look around and I think, do I, should I respond to these people? Even these kids didn't know I'm right here. You know, all this room is filled with Indians. But to them, it was that stereotype of unless you came out in regalia or the bells and the feathers, everything, they didn't understand. So you just kind of like, do I say something or did I just sit here? But I mean, that would happen time and time again. And I thought, how do you handle this question? You know, we're sitting right here. It would sit well with me if they if they just acknowledged it personally on a personal level. You know, I don't expect them to to take that knowledge or to take that new understanding. I, I don't expect them to go to the dinner table and immediately start lobbying their siblings and their family members that hey, you know, our history teacher got it wrong. And I just wanted to share with you this what I experienced at this monument that just came from. I don't expect that to happen. What I what I do hope is that the individual will come to terms with this new perspective, this new, maybe it'll modify their, their attitudes, change their opinion about fishing rights and hunting rights, change their opinion about why it is that tribes get such a, a loud voice at some of these tables that help decide regulation that help decide who gets to fish and who gets to hunt. You know, because there's a lot of misunderstanding there and, and that misunderstanding leads to a lot of negativity and counterproduction. You know, we're not going anywhere. The tribes are not gonna go anywhere. And now you know, we're, we're, we're anchored in here pretty deep. So these are uncomfortable topics. You know, we've gotta be, comfortable enough and content enough and mature enough to have these conversations without using colorful adjectives, without calling out ignorance, without approach this as adults, uh, having a discussion about a very delicate matter that needs to happen, that has to happen. I would like them to walk away with that we're still here. I get that a lot in presentations. Oh, where are you guys located? And I'm like, really? Or even though we have this great, great history and ancestry, we are still moving forward. We do still struggle, but you know, there are some good things that we're doing and trying to help. And, and I do get a lot of people that will ask, what can we do to help? when they're looking at these things, if they were updated and all of this, you know, you just get people from all walks of life. You know, you get a lot of retired people that can say, hey, you know, I can help with that, you know, or I know how to do that, or I can do this. So, you know, tribes do need that support all over. And it's, like I said, whether it's a small tribe, big tribe, that's one of the things I'd like to see to let them know we are still here. I, I got to to go to Europe for the first time this last year and 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 I actually landed in Barcelona, Spain, where there's a, a very famous statue of Columbus. And I think in in America, there are mixed reactions and and outcries against Columbus. My personal uh, affront has not been Columbus. I try to, especially as I educate people when they come in and learn about the Puget Sound tribal history, 
is, you know, Columbus had very little impact on anything here in the Puget Sound area. And in reality, never did end up on the United States, North American continent. His arrival was in, in really Puerto Rico. And yes, did he have a negative impact on the Taino Indian people who are the indigenous people there? Essentially, it, it did have a, a direct impact on them. But but for us to kind of have an outcry against Columbus is is not really what we should be focused on. I, I made it a point when I landed in Barcelona, I wanted to to take a look at the statue and, and at least kind of self-reflect on my place there. But it was kind of a, a unique moment for me to reflect on the fact that our country is pretty young still. Once I got to Europe and learned about a lot of the history of some of the things and times that that, that they took place, it it's pretty extensive our own area of Washington territory. I mean, we didn't become a, a state until 1889. So, so we don't have as much a history as others do. And there's a big part of the history is our tribal history. And so as long as people get that and understand the real tribal history and the relations with the tribes and, you know, how can we monument that? Do we put something up that, that is a monument to the Stilicum tribe at our building? That would be special. The only other monument in Stilicum is some bell that's that's there from, I remember where it's from, but but it's there in a place that people will visit. I mean, we value strength and power through building relationships with people. So as soon as the new people arrived in Puget Sound, building the relationships with those people, sharing in a positive way, uh, sharing land and food and resources and also sharing responsibility for those became a natural part of of the way we existed that's not reflected in the monuments that we have because they're not equally you know sharing a part of the history of the tribal people that were here before much of what happened in this short history of the making of America the rest of that stuff that was important to our people is is not there. It's it's cool when when you can find a can find a a modified tree that was impacted because that was a tree that was harvested in this in a unique way for something that the tribal people were doing, and then that becomes a monument because then there's a story about that as well. Why is this an important tree? Because it's a representation of how the the native people use that resource here, and it's not really a common practice today. I would love to see something like this part of a longhouse wall that's at the Karshner Museum in Puyallup that I discovered there when I was doing some consulting work with them. That's just kind of just there. It's like, here's a piece of a longhouse wall hanging on their wall. When people see that, it's a piece of wood. That's not so meaningful, but that's the kind of monument that's important to me. Why? Because we don't have many pieces of longhouse walls left anymore. During the treaty wars and when we were separated from our longhouses and told we couldn't go back to the area that we normally lived in, they burnt down the longhouses. All those longhouses were destroyed. And so to discover this big piece of a longhouse there that somebody was able to collect and, and donate to this museum, 
that's pretty significant. And it tells a, a big story, not just the story of this is a, what a wall used to look like uh, in, in a longhouse, but also has gives us the opportunity to explore what happened to that longhouse. And why don't we see more of these? Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us monthly as we continue the conversation among diverse communities impacted by the treaty war and its aftermath. To learn more about the Puget Sound Treaty War, visit our tribal partner websites and fortnessqually.org, where you can watch our four-part panel series on the conflict. This podcast is generously supported by the Tacoma Historic Preservation Office and the Tacoma Arts Commission. Music by Vincent Johnson, Nooksack Lummy, and Nishani Johnson, Jamestown Sklalem Lummy. <laughs>